0: Welcome to season three of the Subra Motivation Podcast. Join me, Brad, each week as my guests and I share incredible, inspiring, and powerful sobriety stories. We are here to show sobriety as possible one story at a time. Let's go. Malin started drinking at 13 years old and at 18 things blew up as she was then legal age to purchase beer in Norway. At first it was to keep up with friends and the consequences took a bit of time to set in but she was hooked on the escape alcohol provided. After some years, things progressed and she found herself drinking up to 17 liters of beer or four liters of vodka per day. She didn't go anywhere without alcohol. She mentioned her body was giving out and her doctor confirmed this by wishing her well and saying there was no need for another appointment next year as she would not make it. A life without alcohol was something she could not even imagine. After many months of sickness, Malin was put into a coma, and that lasted three months. Today, we celebrate a true miracle. She has three years sober. This is Malin's story on the Sober Motivation Podcast. Hey, how the heck is it going, everyone? Brad here. Welcome back to another show. This is incredible. All the way from Norway. A story from Norway. This is awesome. It's always been a sort of a dream of mine to get these stories from Different cultures, different places in the world, and this definitely checks a big box. Look, somebody asked me about the whole let's go thing at the beginning of every episode. They said, "What? what is that all about? Look, I have no idea. How the whole podcast started is I reached out to my friend Sober Dave. If you don't, haven't checked out his podcast, check it out, One for the Road with Sober Dave. And I asked him, I said, Dave, you've got a podcast, do you enjoy it? He said, I really enjoy it. I said, I've been thinking about starting a podcast Should I start a podcast? His answer to me was, yes, start the podcast. That night, I ordered this stuff on Amazon to start a podcast, got it the next day. It was about 11.30 at night, and I'm humming and hawing with this idea of starting a podcast. I have no idea at all on how to do any process of a podcast other than the talking part, obviously. And I was working on putting this intro together, and I was so, like convincing myself to not even do this and then at the end of this intro I put together I spent a few hours it was like 11 30 midnight I needed I needed to go to bed and I was really down on myself and I was really just overthinking this entire situation and I wanted to put a little bit of uh, shed a little bit of good light on it and I just at the end of the recording I was just like let's go and then I thought to myself "Well, I'll just delete that later but I left it and that's the whole story of that but Let's get into this week's episode. You're going to love it. Let me know your thoughts too on Instagram at Sober Motivation. I would love to hear from you, and we'll talk soon. And now a few words from our sponsors. Getting sober is a lifestyle change, and sometimes a little technology can help. Imagine a breathalyzer that works like a habit tracker for sobriety. Soberlink helps you replace bad habits with healthy ones. Weighing less than a pound and as compact as a sunglass case, Soberlink devices have a built-in facial recognition, tamper detection, and advanced reporting, which is just another way of saying it'll keep you honest. On top of all that, results are sent instantly to loved ones to help you stay accountable. Go after your goals. Visit Soberlink.com recover to sign up and receive $50 off your device. A lot of people from this show are on the SoberBuddy app, so I want to let you guys know about it. Come over and check out the meetings. The groups, the support, it's all incredible. It's like a family over there. Everybody comes over, they can't believe it. They're like, my goodness, I never knew anything like this existed. So it's there. If you want to get connected to other people on the same journey, check out the Sober Buddy app. I host three meetings, three groups per week, and I would love to have you there to share what's going on with you, to get some support, to hear how other people are working through stuff in their life, and it's just incredible we just come together and we're all on the same mission to live our best life to stay sober and to do this dang thing so download the app today and join us for a group welcome back to another episode of the sober motivation podcast all the way from norway we've got my friend mylin how are you hi i'm great how are you I'm good. Thank you for jumping on here to do this. I've seen your story on Instagram here and there, and it's just incredible. And I reached out to you, and I'm so happy that you said yes to sharing it with us.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited. I've never done anything like this, so I'm happy to help others stuck in this. Yeah. So how we start every show is, what was it like for you growing up? I grew up in a two-parent household. I have two brothers. They are one and three years older than me. My parents had a really unhealthy relationship, so we were actually pretty relieved when they divorced. I was 14 at the time. My father remarried and he moved out of Norway, actually. He moved to Greece. And yeah, we have great contact with our mother. We all live around the same place. And it was a lot of addiction in my family, especially on my father's side. We lost many people to addiction, but it was chaotic at times. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I hear you on that. Yeah, and we've talked on the show a lot before about divorce, you know, the people who share the story of addiction. That, that's a very common theme. What's it like in Norway growing up? Like, you go to school, obviously, and did you play any sports yeah. or anything like that? How would you do in school? Did you have a bunch of friends and stuff like that? Or what was it like?
1: I had a bunch of friends. It's the same friends I have now. My best friend, we met when we were five. I did play football, soccer, football, soccer in school for many years, actually. I come from a kind of like a small, very small town where everyone knows everyone. It's not a lot to do here, or it wasn't when I was a teenager. So we started to party pretty early. The first time I partied with my, just three of my girlfriends, we were actually 12 years old because it was literally nothing to do. So The party scene started pretty early, but yeah, I love living in Norway in general. We have a great healthcare system, which I've needed. I've had a happy childhood. It's just been a little chaotic, yeah. but I've had amazing friends and I still have the same friends and an amazing family.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. When you say a small town, how many people live in this town you grew up in?
1: Really, it's not in a town. It's like a village. I live an hour away from the second largest city in Norway, but right here where I live, we are like 6,000 people maybe.
0: Okay, gotcha. Okay. And you're still there. You still live in the same place you grew up in?
1: Yes, not in the same house. My friends, they built me an apartment, so I live here. But yeah, it's the same place. I want to move closer to the city when I start studying next year, hopefully. But for now, I live here and I have all my friends and family around me.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So you brought it up. I mean, this is a sobriety podcast and we know that that's going to be part of the story here. But at 12 years old, you start kind of partying. Is that drinking alcohol or what does that look like for you at 12? Yeah,
1: we met in our trailer and we were four girlfriends and we're just going to try it out. It was exciting. So we got some older people to buy it for us and it was just us. And it was actually a pretty fun, a fun evening. But it started there, and then my friends and everyone just kept on drinking. And then when we were 14, it really escalated where we were partying a lot you know, on uh, weekends, like home parties. We were obviously wasn't old enough to go to a bar, so we yeah. had a lot of home parties.
0: Gotcha. What are the rules there in Norway to buy and go to bars?
1: It's pretty strict, and that really gave me anxiety in the later years we have. Alcohol is only allowed to buy during the day. We have this restriction. You can buy it from nine AM to eight PM, six PM on Saturdays and on Sundays it's closed. You can't buy alcohol except in bars and pubs. And it's eighteen years old. So you have to be to buy it.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, so and twenty for the hard liquor. Oh oh there's a different age for hard liquor. Yeah,
1: because we sell beers and stuff in the grocery store, but we actually have an apartment for hard liquor. It's not allowed to be sold in grocery stores.
0: Oh, okay. Gotcha. Does that keep a lot of people from getting it or prevent people from getting it?
1: No, I think they just stress out a bit more because this hard liquor building, it closes way earlier than the beer sale. So on Saturdays, the hard liquor actually closes at 3 p.m. And (gasps) in weekdays, it's 6 p.m. Okay,
0: what's it like there? The culture Uh, overall? Like, I mean, I'm in Canada and I talk with a lot of people in the UK, a lot of people in the US, Australia. I mean, everybody shares the same kind of story. I mean, it's just normalized. It's everywhere. Yes, uh, literally everywhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, especially in this small place that I'm living, it's nonstop partying for many people and in the city as well. You really could notice that when it was COVID and everything was closed, the bars and stuff, and the town was just deserted. And then when they opened back up the liquor sale, it was full of people back mm. in the city. So we
0: really noticed the difference. No, that's interesting. Did they actually close the stores? Like you couldn't buy the liquor?
1: Yeah, I was in coma at time, thankfully. But they did close for a while, the stores, and then there were home deliveries. And it was really much harder to get the alcohol. Yeah, And the bars and pubs, they were all closed.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's back up here a little bit. I was just interested about that in a sense, right? Because the thing with alcohol was even here, people couldn't wrap their head around it. Why they weren't closing the stores that sold the alcohol? Well, I mean, because mm-hmm. you can die if you're addicted to alcohol and you don't have it. The majority of the population, I feel like they didn't understand that connection because they were just like mm-hmm. oh well all the other stores are closed why are those stores not closed so that was just interesting to me but so we'll go back so you're starting out of 14th you mentioned things are starting to take off here when it comes to drinking like you're still going to school and doing what you need to do in that sense and you're drinking when do the consequences start for you do they start young
1: well yeah but not that young i was my third year on high school then I really noticed a change in my drinking habits. And I was aware of it. I'm just like, put it back. So I noticed that weekends for me just meant partying. And my schoolwork suffered, of course, that year, the most important one. We had this thing in Norway when we are graduates from high school. Don't know how to explain this tradition, but the month of May, we all dress up in this outfit. And we basically drink for a month to celebrate of getting through high school. It's called this, that really made a difference for me and just kept going from there, I think. In 2011, I was highly aware of my drinking because I read back in some of my journals. I'm actually writing like, you need to stop, you need to not party this much. You have to have a sober weekend. And then I can just see from my journals that it just escalated and it was weekdays, but you know, it was just a couple of beers. And then, yeah, it got worse and
0: worse. Yeah, progressive. Did you have a lot of sober weekends, like since you started at twelve, fourteen, and
1: Yeah, I did. I did have a lot of sober weekends, but not so many after I turned 18. Then I don't think sober weekends, it was there. Because then I could buy it by myself. I could actually go out on the town and not only be on home parties. So it escalated when I turned 18 and then it just kept going.
0: Yeah. What are you doing outside of the drinking with your life after high school?
1: I worked at a bakery and my plan was to reduce some subjects. I needed to improve my score or my grade. So I was just working for a year and then I was going to do that. But then I had plans to do more with that. I already had a pretty big alcohol problem then. So it got delayed and then I couldn't work anymore. I couldn't study and So I started seeing a psychologist that said, so that was what I was doing, trying to get better. Yeah. So my 20s is just a dark chapter. How old are you now? I'm 31. I'll be 32 next Friday. Okay. Oh, happy early birthday.
0: 32. Thank you. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. So walk me through, if you don't mind, like, what did this look like for you? Because I think everybody is a little bit different. A lot of people might be a little bit the same, but like, what did a day in your life look like in your 20s there when you were really struggling with this thing?
1: Well, I got in newspapers here in Norway for a reason. I drank an abnormal amount of alcohol and no one could actually see it. They knew it, but I didn't act any differently. But I actually converted some because Because we use liters here. Do you use gallons? I think. Liters. Liters. Oh, great. So I drank between 12 to 17 liters of beer every day or three to four liters of vodka on my worst. And then everyone was telling me when I was in treatment, I had this addiction psychologist and everyone kept telling me that they had never met anyone who drank as much as I did. They basically didn't know how to treat me. I felt when I actually was trying to get help and I committed myself to like a rehab facility, but they couldn't give me the medication that I needed because they had these rules to follow and they didn't help me at all. So I just couldn't handle it. And the psychologist kept telling me that they wish they could give me more, but they couldn't because it's against the law, even though I drank an abnormal amount.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So would you go through terrible withdrawals if you didn't have it or did you even let yourself get to that point? You did.
1: I did. I started like crazy, hallucinating and it was bad. I was really scared for my life at several points there, and it was just unbearable. I did have some sober periods and lasted a week and then three weeks, but not a lot during the seven years that I drank. And I had this liver doctor (laughs) that I went to every year and he just got more and more depressed. Yeah, everyone just kept telling me that I was going to die. I wasn't going to C30. And again, a lot of weight because I drank a lot of beer.
0: Yeah. I mean, this might be a little bit of a silly question. What did you feel the need to have so much beer for?
1: I just developed this insane tolerance. I saw on TV like this, alcoholic that drank eight beers a day. And I was like, oh my God, that would have been so much cheaper. I live in Norway. It's not cheap to drink. But I just needed more and more to actually function. I could have withdrawals. If my blood alcohol level got under, we say, three here. It's a deadly limit. But I started to shake way before I was actually sober. Yeah, I just had a ridiculous tolerance for alcohol and just kept growing. So Mm -hmm. by the end there, I actually drank four liters of vodka a day. If I drank
0: vodka or up to 30 and 30, I have 17 liters of beer. Is your mom around at this time? Like in your 20s there? Yeah. Was she noticing?
1: Yes, she
0: did. You lived with her? Yeah, I did. Yeah,
1: okay. So she noticed pretty early, and then my brothers found out, and as I said, I live in a small place, so it didn't really take that long before everyone knew, and it just kept escalating. At the start of all this, they tried to, of course, get me help and try to get me out of it, and then they realized, eventually, they just had to accept me for the disease and all, so... Uh, yeah, they stood by me all those years. And they knew that wherever I came, alcohol came with me. They really adjusted extremely. I have pretty really great friends and family.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, They're of course very worried about me. Yeah, because four liters, and you said it's expensive too, right? So, yeah, ridiculous.
1: Now, if you're gonna have a beer out on the town, I try to not because that's just ridiculous. It's equivalent to. for one beer out on the town. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, no, it is for sure. So do you consider yourself an alcoholic or no?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yes, absolutely. I actually realized it pretty early. Actually, I was like, yes, I know I am. This is not usually how people behave around alcohol. So I realized it actually back in 2011. I had totally forgotten about this until I read through my journals but then I had these long discussions with myself that I had not partying every weekend. And, but uh, yeah, I knew I was very honest when people asked me questions. Mm-hmm. It was so much better when I didn't answer your You know,
0: Less stressful, you know, it's the uh, living hell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just sitting here just thinking I'm so proud of you for where you've Thank come. You. Because, you know, oftentimes you hear a story and then I'm looking at you now and... You're smiling and you're telling us. that I'm like, my goodness, I'm just so happy that you were able to find a way out of this. But I know that the story does take a little bit more of a turn down the road from here. But yeah, it's interesting because in 2011, you knew you were an alcoholic, quote unquote. I always hear two different sides of that, right? Some people openly admit it, that it is what it is, but are not moving in the direction of changing it, but just kind of like accepted it. Do you feel like you just accepted it? I'm an alcoholic and this is the way I'll go out like this?
1: No, not at first. I actually did go to see a psychologist once a week for seven years for all the time that I was drinking. And at the start of this, I had hope because when I started to drink daily from the moment I woke up, I had this surgery. I got my tonsils removed. And then I noticed that I could stop drinking for actually for a month. So then I was kind of like back to, oh, maybe it's not such a big deal because I could quit. But that was actually the last time I could. And then I did set it in a way. I was thinking, okay, I'm in my early twenties, I'm going to survive this, you know? Mm. It's just a phase. Like as the years went on, then I could actually feel my body dying. And my doctor, he told me literally every time I saw him, he told me that you will not live to see third 30- You will be dead long before that. And I was like, yeah, no. He said that so many times, you know, I'm still alive. And I just kept trying to ignore the danger of it, even though I knew it and I could feel it. But the last three years, I was just like a walking dead. I didn't have any energy in 2019. I actually sat on the couch and whenever I had to go to the toilet, which was often because I drank insanely I actually sat on the couch just crying because I didn't have the energy to actually stand up. I hadn't brushed my hair for a year or so because I actually had to lift my arms. It was
0: hell on earth. It was. Yeah, looking back, I mean, did you have any awareness that this is what alcohol could do? No, I was thinking about it a lot because
1: one side of my family in particular, they have had struggles with addiction. We're not that many left. I had this... Weird, it's so embarrassing to look back on, but I was like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. I mean, I didn't really think much of it and what it actually did to people and how it could absolutely take control of your life. Because I was like, I can't be an addict. When it started, I was thinking that I was too young. You know, who's ever heard of a 20-year-old female alcoholic? You know, they are like 70-year-old men. I was comforting myself. Yeah, no, I didn't think of alcohol in that way. At all, before it
0: happened to me. Wow, yeah, but that is so true. Yeah, I mean, stepping back, we have these pictures in our minds or our experiences about who looks like this or who fits in that box, you know, and really at the end of the day, it's like our neighbors, it's our friends, our family. Those are the people who are struggling. It's not just people that we think that we see in the movies and all that type stuff. Yeah, my goodness, I I thought I knew some of your story and I'm realizing really quick here that I don't know any of it. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't shared this much. (laughs) Yeah, which I really appreciate you doing it because that's a really powerful part of it all is that this thing can get anybody. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. where you come from. It doesn't matter what things look like for you, what status you have, what race we are, anything. It can really grab hold of anybody because it doesn't care. And some people want to argue that to say, well, it's not going to for some people. But here's the thing is when you go to the store, and you go and you buy that box of beer or that vodka. They don't ask you where you work, what race you are. It doesn't matter. Anybody can get it. And if you can get it, then you can get hooked on it.
1: Yeah. I was thinking the same thing when people have often told me that I got this because of my genes and whatever. And I'm like, you know, it can happen to you too. Like you don't have to come from an addiction family, you know, it can yeah. grab a hold of you too as well. And they're like, oh, no, I'm in control and I just use for fun and whatever. And I can see warning signs on people around me and they don't admit that it's there. I don't know if they literally don't know or if they just try to fool themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more powerful than
0: people think. Yeah. Like a lot more. For sure. Mm -hmm. And it does sound like you got to a really, really tough place. And you mentioned, too, like you felt like you were dying, right? Is that what you said earlier?
1: I could feel my body dying. I actually went as far as to write letters to all my loved ones that they would find when I was dead. It wasn't their fault and that I loved them and everything. I hid them under my bed because I knew when they would clean out my apartment and they would find it. I didn't want to die. I wanted to live more than anything. I wanted to quit drinking. I prayed and I prayed and I just, it was really horrible. But I knew I was going to die when I had my last checkup. Before everything, my liver doctor's office, he actually told me that he was always depressed when I was there, but he just told me that, I know we have this standing appointment every fall, but I won't see you next year. And I think you know this. And I was like, yes, I do. I could feel that my body wasn't going to survive another year. Six months after that appointment,
0: I was in a coma. Wow. Okay, before we jump into that, though, I wanted just to mention something on what you shared there. I mean, for sure, that's really heavy stuff. And I do appreciate you for sharing that because that's really heavy, you know, but I think that's where it can lead us, right? Everybody's going to have their different sort of ending to the addiction. But I think that's the toughest spot to be in. It was for me anyway. I wanted nothing more than to quit, but I just couldn't quit. And everybody around you looks at you. Like I had people that were supportive and I had people that were judgmental. And even the supportive people, I don't think that they could quite wrap their head around Why can you not just shut this thing down? And I would talk with them and say, I want nothing more than to do that. Trust me, I don't want to live this way, but I just can't do it. And I just wanted to shed light on that. Like for me personally, that was the hardest place to be is that I wanted nothing more to get sober. But for a few years, I just couldn't do it.
1: Agreed. I absolutely agree. They wanted to understand the people around me, but they didn't have an addiction. So I tried to like compare it to that. If I had oxygen tank and alcohol in front of me, I would actually drink till I passed out. Mm. I would choose alcohol over oxygen, and I tried to explain how it was like. But you know, they can't understand it because they haven't felt that on their body. But they did know eventually that is. They did understand that it was not a choice for me. That I wanted out um, every single minute of a day for years. You know, the first year it was whatever, but after the first year, I just, I wanted out and I would do almost anything to get out of it, but I couldn't. Yeah, it was really my biggest wish. So I never, ever take this for
0: granted. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So moving forward into the story. So 2019, where are we at now? About 2020. Because you're going to go into this when you went into a coma here. Lead mm-hmm. us up to that, you know, a week before that. What did things look like? What was that all about?
1: Well, I can go a month before because it's kind of relevant. I knew I was going to die, you know. I was just so surprised every day when I actually woke up. Then I started one day to notice that my legs were really weak. Like they couldn't carry me. And I was like, okay, that's just the alcoholism, you know, killing me. So it's just probably how it starts. Actually, I didn't go to the doctor or anything until I was almost completely paralyzed in the legs. And then I went to my doctor's office and he, of course, sent me to the hospital. And at the hospital, they took away my alcohol. So I discharged myself against medical advice. So uh, this all happened again. I got more and more paralyzed. But sent back to the hospital, they did the same, took away my alcohol. So I left against medical advice. And then the last time, This is a crucial moment. I collapsed at home because it was reaching my lungs and my organs were shutting down. The first thing when I wake up at the hospital, there's this doctor in front of me and he says, no one on this floor, nurses or doctors, is going to comment on your drinking. You do you. You can have as much beer in here as you want. Just do not leave this hospital because you won't come back. And then I stayed because he didn't take my alcohol away. And I was in a coma a few hours later. So he saved my life because I would have left if he wouldn't have said that. And I was in a wheelchair. I had people actually helping me because I couldn't walk at this point. So I had to wheel myself out of the hospital. I had a mother and a friend who helped me, but they didn't know what to do, you know. But yeah, that doctor really saved my life. And they was on my brother's birthday which made it all more depressing I couldn't talk because my lungs were shutting down so I just kept coughing this horrible cough and I was so tired I couldn't handle all the coughing so I actually asked them to put me in a coma I couldn't live like this anymore and then my mother took her phone to my ear so I could try to wish my brother a happy birthday <laughs> and I just coughed in the phone and he was like yeah I know what you're trying to say and I love you and that was the last time I talked to him I was in a coma really shortly
0: after wow your mom's there with you, yeah. though?
1: She was with me, but this was March 19, 2020. So I was three months in the hospital with no visitors because of COVID. But months four, they could visit me again. But yes, she was with me at the time. We were actually in quarantine when I was put in a coma. And then she had to leave because of COVID. So she had to wait for her calls every day. Almost the first thing they told her every day when they were going to give her an update was that my fever wouldn't break. It didn't break for two months. I got prednisone and that saved my life. But they told her like in every phone call that her liver is horrible, but she's not a candidate for transplant. If her liver dies, she dies. So that was really hard for her to hear. They told her so often and she was like,
0: yeah, I get it. Yeah. Wow. Did they mention to yeah. you that they were going to put you in a coma?
1: Yeah, they did. The timeline here in 2020, I remember everything from my alcoholism, like everything. But the last few months, it's really weird in my head. But the timeline, because when I got in a coma, my world started for me. This is a world of my own. I lived in for years. I hallucinated. And so I have a little hard time placing everything. But they did tell me that they considered putting me in a coma and that it's nothing improved and I actually begged them to put me in a coma because I couldn't handle it anymore. I was so weak and my body just kept on coughing and I was like, "It is too much. I didn't have any energy and then
0: my body just kept coughing and it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was for three months? Four months. Four four months. Uh, Wow.
1: Yeah. The last month I could have visitors though. So fourth month was just
0: heaven on earth, actually. That's beautiful. And your mom and your brothers and friends came to visit you?
1: Yeah. First of all, I woke up and I had hallucinated so much. I was absolutely sure that I was like 45 and I had no idea where I was. I had a lot of delirium and it was just so unreal. And then they proceeded to tell me that I tend had have visitors because of this pandemic that is named after a beer and I was like of course my brain would make that up because it's a corona it's a beer of course my brain would you know make something like that up I was like yeah sure I had this tv in the ceiling (laughs) because I was paralyzed I couldn't talk so just lay there and then watch this tv and on the news they were like yeah people are fighting over toilet paper and I was like yeah uh, yeah sure sure they are like this is not happening. So I was just thinking that it was not real. I was still in a coma. I didn't actually understand that I had woken up for quite some
0: time, actually. Wow. Yeah. And so how do you feel when you wake up? Like, do you think about drinking when you wake up or no?
1: Actually, yes, I did. But I thought I was still in a coma. So I was like, this world that I woke up to, I thought I was hallucinating. So I was like wondering what was happening with my real body since it was obviously not it. And I was like, okay, maybe I wake up and I'm sober or maybe I'm dead. And this is my purgatory. It's horrible time. The time works very differently. Like I was transferred to the neighbor hospital and actually I just stayed there for about a week on the ICU there, two months on the other ICU. But this ICU actually felt like 10 years to me because I woke up in different rooms and places and I lived in these worlds, very hard to explain, but I had a lot of hallucinations and delirium. I, I didn't actually understand that it was real until my fourth month. Yeah, but I was really trying to wake up and I was trying to get my physical therapist to throw me out the window, actually. Just, no I didn't want to kill myself. I just wanted to, you know, when you fall in a dream, you wake up. And I wanted to wake up, so, but they didn't understand that, of course. And I was super happy, at <laughs> yeah, this time. I weighed 165 kilos, so like 363 pounds. They can just throw me out the window.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't think they actually yeah. would have done it. I hope not. My
0: goodness. No. You're about to turn the corner here. <laughs> I hope they don't just, dis- they- that's it, out the window. <laughs> yeah, so then where do you go from there?
1: I went out of the hospital, 10 stress stresses now. just amazing physical rehab facility because I was paralyzed and I was going to learn how to walk in stuff and then my first day there they told me that the rules were that you could have two visitors the same ones during your entire stay but since i've been in the hospital for three months they made an exception for me so i could have different visitors every day but the first people that came in it was my mother my brother and my best friend and I hadn't seen them for, it was three months, but for me, it was 15 years in my head. I lived through a lot of weird shit and a lot of years in my hallucinations. When I actually saw them again, it was just, I had no words. It was just so, so lonely. I was paralyzed for three months and I couldn't talk because I had this tube in my throat. Uh, so I just lay there for three months and I couldn't tell them how I felt when the physical therapist touched me and tried to get me to sit up on the bed. I couldn't tell them that it was just these excruciating nerve pains and I couldn't scream or anything. So it was just very claustrophobic. So I got through this rehab facility and then they unplugged my tube I had in my throat yeah. and the tube I had in my nose and on my chest and everything. They just unplugged everything. Mm. And I had a little one on my wrist and I could talk again. And then I got visitors. And then I could actually go outside because they had this beautiful viewing garden from my room. So my visitors, my mom, my brother, and my best friend, they wheeled me outside in the fresh air and it was like magic. But I still had this feeling that I was in a coma, you know, somewhere, but it was the first time I actually hoped that it was real life. I didn't dream it, you know, I loved it there. They're just amazing people and I had physical therapy every day and I had my visitors and it slowly like came to me that I'm actually sober, you know, this is my four months sober and it's just unreal to me. I didn't dare to believe it, I think. Then I talked to my aunt. She's one of my closest relatives. We have always had this special bond and she was going to visit me the next day. This was a Thursday and then she died that night and... My brain got straight back into like, this is not real. This is my hallucination. And then I just wished for the opposite. I wished that I was still in coma somewhere because I couldn't deal. And this was actually the first time I had to deal with something sober in years. And I was still so confused and it was really out of the body experience. I think I blacked out. Yeah, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It still is. I did get to know that I talked to her on the phone the night before. She got to know that I survived and that I was sober. Not a day goes by without me
0: missing her. Yeah. Was that important to her for you to get sober? Did she mention it to you before? Yeah,
1: Yeah, but she was really understanding. And that side of the family had a lot of addiction. It was very, you know, normalized. And I really looked like them. And yeah, she wanted me to quit. She wanted me to survive. And she got to know that at least. But she should have been here with me
0: yeah I'm sorry for Mm -hmm. that sorry for your loss with her thank you yeah so you're doing the physical therapy because yeah you're still paralyzed right how long does that last for
1: I learned to walk with help I had this tall walker in the hospital I learned my first sets back in the hospital a few days before I was transferred to the rehab facility but then I really started at the rehab facility so I could walk with help yeah so it just gradually got better. I'm still in physical therapy because it's a lot of things I can't do yet. Like, I can't even believe that I used to jump, like,
0: easily. It's insane to me. But yeah, I love it. though. So. Yeah. So you got that whole side of the physical therapy stuff. How have you been able to stay sober and not drink?
1: i prayed so hard for the second chance. And it was just extremely disguised. But I have not an, even a little cravings after what I've been through. I. Remember, the reason actually I have these before videos of me walking at the hospital is because it wasn't then that I was going to do this before after stuff. I asked them to film me walking and I could see the pain in my eyes because if I ever thought about drinking again, I would have these videos to look back on and see the consequences. Luckily, I haven't needed it. I'm just so beyond happy that I got this second chance and I would never ever with it. I really want to help people in the same situation as I was. And I just have to believe that this is why I was given this second chance when everyone was telling me that I was going to die. I lost the weight along the way. And when you're in the ICU in Norway, they write you these journals. From your stay there because you usually hallucinate and stuff so that you can get perspective and stuff. And they take photos of you. You can see your entire stay and they write how your day has been. And so I had these journals from the hospital and they really helped me a lot, which is why they do this to get perspective on things. And I really could have seen what I actually went through. And that has helped me a lot. I don't think of alcohol in that way anymore. I think of it like this. Devil, I really hate being around it. I hate watching it. I really hate it. I'm just beyond happy to be
0: sober. I can only imagine. I never really came that close, I don't think. I mean, maybe sometimes. But to be able to go from where you were, right? Because the addiction just enslaves us. Everything we mm-hmm. do revolves around it. To get onto the other side, to be able to feel good in the morning and wake up and do all this stuff and Everything, yeah, I mean that truly is a second chance where you have been able to turn things around from
1: yeah, it really is, and I think that's the rewards we get because I've talked to my friends about this, how grateful I am for stuff they don't even think about, you know, like I can get up from the toilet with no help because my legs carry me now, and I can wake up and not create alcohol. I usually got panic attacks. When the time was close to eight or six, when the alcohol closed, sale and only. And now it's just a Sunday, you know? I love Sundays now. And I actually have this here. It says the best gift in life is the second chance. And then I have a before, in between, and after picture of me. It's Very motivational
0: to have on my wall. Wow. That is incredible. Well, you're making the best of this. What's the plan to help others? And on top of that, what would you say if somebody's listening to the show and they're stuck in any part of this, right? Because I think there's a spectrum here, right? Things weren't like this when you first started and people are going to find themselves at different places. What would you say to somebody who's like just starting out with it, exploring whether or not they got a problem or they should call it quits or what do you think? I wish I would have known
1: this back then. <laughs> yeah. Just seek help before it gets sad. You know, I went thinking that, no, it's not that bad. I can't seek help yet. They're going to think I'm an idiot because I don't have a problem, but just do it. It does matter. And this actually was amazed me the most about being sober. You know, I said everything because it's awesome. I had this voice when I was an active alcoholic. I want to quit more than anything. But then when I pictured my life without alcohol, something just happened in my brain, like I couldn't picture it and how would I ever have fun again and all this weird stuff going on. And when I think back, those kind of thoughts now, it was just so, so clear to me that it was the alcoholism talking, that those thoughts were absolutely fake. And I wish I had known that back then. I wish an addict had told me that, that these thoughts were just completely fake. It was just your alcoholism trying to get you to keep drinking, you know. Yeah, I really wish I had known that because I truly believe that my life would be less somehow if I managed to stop drinking, which is just completely the opposite.
0: Yeah, that's so true. But we get stuck in that. And I think it relates too, to we feel like we're giving something up. But in reality, yeah. we're getting so much. We're gaining oh, so, so much. much. Like it's like giving up. They say a lot to that giving up one thing for everything, you know, yeah. like you just get so much back. Mm-hmm. If you mentioned, Sundays, your mornings, I mean, relationships, opportunities, and ultimately that peace of mind, the peace of mind to where yes. there's not something on your shoulder 24 seven, 365, that's just tapping you over and over and over again to just burn down and destroy your entire life. That feels good. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And I thought about alcohol, and how to get it 24 hours a day, like every minute. And I had to bring it everywhere. And I couldn't eat at a restaurant where there wasn't selling alcohol like McDonald's or whatever. I always had to bring it and I always had to worry about having money for it. And when they closed and a year into my alcoholism, I became an aunt for the first time to my beautiful nephew. And it was just so sad to me and all of us that I couldn't be the aunt I wanted to because of my energy, it was just not there. And then last year, both of my brothers had a girl each so now I have three and babies and I'm just the most committed aunt. I'm almost like a stalker ant <laughs> and I can, <laughs> I just, I'm so involved in their lives. And mm. my nieces will never get to see that side of me and that I'm healthy, that I looked completely different. You know, you see how sick I was and they will never experience that side of me. And I'm just so thrilled I became a godmother to both of them. My nephew's Baptist, baptism, mm. I couldn't attend wasn't invited. They did always recruit me, both my friends and family, but I was in a vodka period at the time. So it's just, I didn't have any energy and no business being there really.
0: Yeah.
1: It's really bugged me a lot. Yeah. All the things I missed in my twenties.
0: Yeah, no, but it sounds like, you know, you're moving forward. You're doing the best you can, right? Yeah, Which is absolutely.
1: Good. I want to pay this back in whichever way I can. Actually now in September, I've been invited back to the hospital to give a lecture in front of just hundreds of people. So I'm really nervous about everything. And of course, I said yes, because I spent for years, and I really prayed for years. I said that if I just get out of this, I will use my second chance to do whatever I can to help others with this. And so next year, I'm hoping to get into nursing school. And then if my legs are where I want them to be, so now I'm going to give a lecture, you know, if I don't pass out. I call the old me, she, and I think she would be so proud of me and I'm doing it for her. You know, the hopeless girl that thought she would never live to see 30. I really just want to help any way I can. It's the first thing I think about every single morning. I know that I wasn't actually supposed to be here. You know, I'm turning 32 next week and no one thought that was possible. So
0: really, really blessed. I got to be honest, I'm taken back by your story. I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Lily. What day is your birthday? What day next week?
1: It's on Friday 1st, September okay. 1st. Okay. Yeah. Something you have to know about me because it's just the epitome of everything I am. <laughs> I'm an extreme Christmas person and I always have been like borderline crazy Christmas person. And <laughs> When I couldn't feel that joy anymore for seven years, that was actually one of the worst things for me. I couldn't feel the Christmas spirits and it was just beyond horrible. And so when I got better and I was going to have my first Christmas sober in 2020, everything was closed. I couldn't really do the things I wanted to, like Christmas markets and whatever, they were closed, but that didn't matter at all because I was sober and it was my first Christmas sober and it was just magical. When I started decorating, I could just feel it again and it was. Incredible. So now, since I missed seven years of my beloved Christmas spirit, I start decorating and celebrating Christmas on my birthday, September 1st. Oh. Yeah, that's when Christmas starts for me. So it lasts like four months. I've had a lot of comments about this, but everyone gets it. So I'm going to serve my family like gingerbread and whatnot when they come into celebrating. Wow. But I don't go all out. I just start to like decorating. And then in October, then it's all that.
0: October, it's done. It's everything yeah. Christmas. Yeah. Now, that's incredible. Yeah, I love that. Whatever works for you, obviously, right? Like, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's
1: also one of the things I'm doing for her because I just remember how depressed and hopeless she felt around Christmas time because, you know, I remember that I used to love it. It was my favorite thing in my life, you know, and I just couldn't feel it. So I'm doing it for her as
0: well. We have a lot of Christmases too catch up on no for sure for sure is there anything before we wrap this up that you'd like to leave everybody with where can they find you if they want to reach out to you and say thank you or connect with you in any way too
1: well i have an instagram i'm very active on i'm soily91 is my username you can reach me there and the reason also i want to share my story is because i always told my psychologist that i wish that i had someone like on tv that was doing, I don't know how to put this, but worse than I did. So then if they got out of it, that I could too. But it wasn't anyone worse than me. I was sold all over by doctors and psychologists. They had never, ever met anyone who drank as much. They didn't really know what to do with me. So this is also one of the reasons I went public and I went in the newspapers here in Norway. Because I want to be that person that I wanted to have for someone. You know, it was so bad in my case. and. So, when I can get out of it, like literally everyone, everyone can. I uh, hope to inspire people to do that because it really, it really is not over until it's absolutely over. I was like a second away from dying and then I didn't. And now I'm sober and happy and just driving. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so, yeah, so grateful.
0: Well, you've inspired me today, my friend.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's been yeah. very fun
0: doing this. You've done incredible to walk us through what it was, and I believe that your story is going to do exactly that, to let other people know that they can get off of the train, per se, whenever they want to, and that there's a lot of benefits if you do, and you don't have to ride this thing till the end, or to the stop right before the end, you know, you can change your life and make something no matter where you're at, so... Thank you so much. And I'll drop your Instagram handle in the show notes for anybody who wants to give you a follow. And if you want to, too, you can check out some of the videos. The videos you've done are incredible to showcase your transformation and what you've been through. Go and look at the videos, everybody. Trust me. It'll really paint a bigger picture. It'll just connect you more with the story because this is just an audio show. Go over there and check out those videos because... It's a miracle, truly. It will truly paint a whole other picture for you to kind of see this stuff in real life in that sense. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much for this opportunity. It's been very fun. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Wow, what an incredibly powerful episode on the podcast. Now, Malin is from Norway, so English is not her first language, but I think she did incredibly well. It was a little bit of a tougher episode to get edited just because of uh, the recording device that was used and stuff like that. But what an incredible story. My goodness, I mean, a coma for three months in the hospital for four, waking up during a pandemic. I mean, how wild would that have been? Especially as she mentioned she couldn't talk. So just taking in information and not being able to say anything at first. But where she's at now compared to where she was. I'm honestly blown away. If you look at her Instagram, like I said I'll drop it in the show notes, you look at some of the videos of her going through stuff and having to learn how to walk again and do all those things that most of us just take for granted every single day. I know I do at times. To learn how to do all that, come out the other side and and now be on a mission and a journey to help others. I mean, it's truly inspiring. Truly, truly inspiring. So I hope you guys love this episode as much as I did. As always, if you're enjoying the show, drop a review on Apple or Spotify. If you're listening on Spotify, leave a comment. They have a new comment section and polls. I try to put a poll on each episode so you can share your thoughts there or you can drop some feedback and stuff for for the people to to check it out. But that's it for this episode, and I'll see you on the next one.